You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. Brittany's in good spirits. She's relieved to finally be heading home. And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life, experienced a needless trauma. She deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal from her time being wrongfully detained. American basketballer Brittany Griner and Russian arms dealer Victor Bout are returned to their respective homelands. But what, if any, role did Saudi Arabia and the UAE play? Also ahead... As the pre-sentence report makes clear, you are not someone who needs rehabilitation. You need to be sentenced, and then both you and the family of Harry Dunn can move on. Justice of a sort for the British teenager killed three years ago in an accident involving the wife of an American intelligence officer. But are justice and closure the same thing? And we'll have our weekly reflection on the extent to which the last seven days have enlarged the sum of human knowledge. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. The American basketball star Brittany Griner is now back in the United States. The Russian arms dealer Victor Bout is now back in Russia. The pair were traded in a prisoner swap. Griner has spent much of this year in custody in Russia after being caught with cannabis oil at a Moscow airport. Bout has served a rather longer stretch for rather more serious crimes. A clue, potentially, to the backstory of the deal was the location of the exchange, Abu Dhabi. Airport. Well, joining me in the studio is Bill Law, Middle East analyst and editor of Arab Digest. Um, Bill, there are conflicting reports, which we shall get into presently, about what role the UAE and Saudi Arabia may have played here. But beyond the fact that they were traded on the tarmac at Abu Dhabi Airport, literally, there is footage of them getting off respective planes and getting on the other respective plane. Um, what do we know for sure? Well, uh, what we know is that the Saudis and Emiratis have made uh, this very public claim that they were essential to this uh, swap, and the Americans, the the, uh, uh, White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, has reiterated time and again, no, no, this was just between us and the Russians. Um, What I find intriguing is that normally when these sorts of things go on, if you are engaged you don't shout it out mm. immediately and the release is affected. It's, it's usually more of a quiet process. So I find that curious. I'm, I'm, I'm less surprised at, uh, at how the White House has responded. There is, as you know, Andrew, plenty of tension now, particularly between the, uh, the Saudis and Joe Biden. Um, they just don't like Joe Biden. And, of course, Biden went to Jeddah and the infamous uh, fist bump, <laughs> which didn't secure what he was asking for, which is putting more oil on the market ahead of the uh, the midterms. Uh, as it turned out for Joe Biden, he had a rather good uh, midterms uh, in any event. But this, uh, to, to me, this speaks about this, this shift, almost a tectonic shift that is going on. And what these uh, authoritarian Gulf leaders are saying to America is now, look, we are not the same leaders that you are used to dealing mm. with. We're not the sort of leaders who, when you say, how much oil do you want us to put on? We say, okay, we'll, we'll put it out there. 
we are we are living in a different world, and and you know the, the situation with um, the Saudis in particular, but also the Emiratis, they, they they have a line through to Putin clearly. I mean, they're all in OPEC. Mm. OPEC plus uh, the Saudis came in in 2016. Uh, there's lots of give and take back and forth. Uh, the Emiratis. And the Saudis aren't on the same page all the time with OPEC Plus. I think the Emiratis actually put like to put a little more oil out there. The Saudis are saying, "No, I'm not. We're not going to do it." MBS is saying that, and of course there are these competitive elements. Yeah, look at what the Mohammed bin Salman is doing with tourism. He is spending literally hundreds of billions mm. to turn the kingdom into a kind of hotspot for Western and Asian tourists. Well, that's a direct challenge to Dubai, which you know for 20 years has dominated that that sector. In, in, in the Gulf, and, and they have tensions over the economy, ec- economic tensions. For example, the Saudis put out this edict uh, earlier this year saying, if you want to do business, you have to move your head office to mm-hmm. Riyadh. Yeah? And, and of course, the Emiratis, Dubai, and, and Abu Dhabi are saying, hang on a minute, this isn't the way we, we, we like this. So there are these kinds of tensions back and forth. But I think it actually speaks to this bigger shift that's going on. I think Americans still don't get it. Mm. They don't understand that there is this new leadership in place that is not going to play the game that they're used to playing. And and so, you know, I don't really know the extent to which the uh, Saudis and Emiratis were essential. They might have put in a good word. Uh, I think the basic negotiations went on between uh, uh, the White House and Moscow, I think that that that, that would be mm. my my best guess be, on it. Because it would be, would it not, extraordinarily cheeky for the Saudis to be floating the idea that they had played a role here if they genuinely had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, and I think they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go. It's it's how much you amplify, mm. you know, your your contribution to this. How much you big it up. And and as I say, I mean, normally in these, I mean, if you look at the uh, the Qataris, for years they've hosted the Taliban. It was all done on a on on the quiet. I mean, people, mm. we knew that the Taliban. Were there, but by golly, you couldn't get to the Taliban as a journalist. I could never get to them. I tried and tried and tried. That was all done in the quiet, and and in fact, it was useful to Trump because Trump was able to use Doha to negotiate this terrible deal that he dumped on on Biden, as it turned mm-hmm. out, in, in regards to Afghanistan. So, but that was all done quietly. This is really out in the open, and in a sense, I think there's a kind of petulance at play here as well on both sides that, uh, you know, the good news is that uh, Brittany Griner is home. I mean, there are people saying, well, you know, was that a good trade? And in the sports world, <laughs> you would say maybe it wasn't such a good deal. But I, you know, I'm glad for her and her family and, and her wife that, that she's home. And it's, and it's a win for Biden as well, isn't it? Um, well, indeed so. But as you say, there is clearly a relationship between Moscow and Riyadh and between Moscow and the UAE. Is it imaginable that they could perhaps serve as a conduit, or do we also assume, and obviously I mean in reference to Ukraine, or, or do we assume that Russia and the United States are also communicating about that quite directly? Well, I think in terms of, uh, you know, the, I think there is still, a, you know, a pipeline between them, because there has to be, because, mm. you know, of, of the potential of, 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 a, of a fundamental error that leads to a catastrophe for both sides. So I think that's going on. The extent to which the Emiratis and the Saudis can be a pipeline, I'm not sure about that. Because if you look at what they have done, I mean, they've basically taken the side of Russia in this dispute mm. because they haven't honored any of the sanctions. Uh, if you look at Dubai, you know where a lot of those kleptocrats have arrived with their well, money indeed. and their super yachts in Dubai. And and uh, so so I don't and I, and I think, again, because of this shift, I don't think the Americans are feeling very comfortable right now. 
uh, with with the Saudis or the Emiratis. I mean, a few years ago, uh, the, Emir- the Emiratis were called Little Sparta, you know, for their <laughs> contributions in the war in Afghanistan. Now look at where it is. It's all very tense. The Americans are really annoyed about this 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 leak that was given to the Washington Post that the Emiratis have been spying not just on dissidents and journalists they don't like, but on politicians using this Israeli spyware Pegasus. So I think this speaks to this kind of tension, this kind of shift that's going on in, in the in the in the between the two. Bill Law, thank you as always for joining us. You are listening to the briefing. Here is Monocle's Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. The managing director of the International Monetary Fund has praised China's decisive move away from its hardline zero-COVID policy. Kristalina Georgieva said the actions would help revive growth both in the country and globally. The Chinese government announced earlier this week that people will no longer need to show negative virus tests or health codes in order to travel between different parts of the country. The United Kingdom, Japan and Italy are teaming up to build a sixth-generation fighter jet designed to rival the best warplanes employed by the likes of China and Russia. Work on developing it is already underway with the aim to create a combat aircraft that will provide speed stealth, use advanced sensors and even artificial intelligence to assist the human pilot when they are overwhelmed or under extreme stress. And Russian firefighters are trying to put out a massive blaze that engulfed one of the largest shopping centers in a suburb of Moscow, leading to the collapse of part of the structure and one reported death. The fire spread over an area of about 7,000 square meters in the Mega Kimki shopping and entertainment center. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. The 26 countries of the Schengen area, Europe's visa-free zone, are about to become 27. They are not, however, about to become 29, which is to say that while Croatia's acceptance into Schengen has been signed off by EU interior ministers, Romania's and Bulgaria's have not, despite the fact that Romania and Bulgaria have been EU members six years longer than Croatia. It was Austria and the Netherlands who kiboshed the aspirations of Romania and Bulgaria. Bulgaria, suggesting that both were impermissibly soft on illegal immigration. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Suzanne Lynch, chief Brussels correspondent with Politico. Um, Suzanne, the European Commission had backed all three countries to join Schengen, so is it a surprise that two of them aren't? Yes, I mean, this was a surprise, and it came down to a very uh, political discussion at the meeting here yesterday. And really, it's down to one country, Austria. Uh, Austria has seen a real increase in migrants coming through uh, the Western Balkans route, mainly through Serbia, but up into uh, the EU via those Western Balkan countries that are not members of the EU. And they have been struggling with this for some months. And the numbers are very, very high for Austria. So politically at the moment, um, they gave the signal in the last couple of weeks that they weren't prepared to allow other members into the Schengen free zone. Even, as you say, Romania and Bulgaria are in the EU um, they were just not prepared to sign off on that yesterday. They feel that this issue is too politically sensitive. Um, and it, Austria, I mean, it wasn't completely alone. The Netherlands had issues too, but they had indicated that they just had concerns over Bulgaria, whereas they would back Romania and Croatia's accession. But in the end, uh, it, they decided all countries, they couldn't get consensus on this. 
just to go with Croatia and Romania and Bulgaria are basically blocked at this point. I mean, we will get to the dark and shabby political subtexts shortly, but it's it's not like I think it's important to emphasise that Austria and, as you correctly point out, to a lesser extent, the Netherlands don't have a case. Those numbers you mention are quite startling. Uh, irregular entries, as they're known, into the EU via the West Balkans, this is according to Frontex, are up 77% year on year. Yes, exactly. And one of the things the EU has been working on was what was happening in particularly Serbia um, was that countries, migrants have been coming from countries that traditionally don't come into the EU. So, for example, India, uh, Tunisia, Burundi, there was a high number of citizens of those countries going to Serbia because they have a visa free arrangement there and then going from Serbia up through uh, other countries into the EU. So the EU has kind of been quietly working with Serbia to say, you need to align your visa free policies with ours and we can try and get this issue under control. That's kind of been happening and there is some progress on that. And Serbia has agreed to align its visa free regime with the EU by the end of the year. But in the meantime, a lot of these migrants have been coming to Austria. And like other countries, Austria has also been dealing with an influx of refugees from Ukraine. So it's become a very big political issue in Austria. And presumably, um, I mean, they're not going to say this specifically, but we know that politically it was going to be too difficult for the government to say, to give the green light for more countries to enter the the visa-free zone, Schengen, when there's such a concern about migrants coming in at the moment. So can we assume, and we wouldn't be the first who did, that Austria's government has, well recognise the fact that you rarely lose votes by teeing off at migrants? Yes, that is, I mean, there, there, to an extent, yes. But the way the EU works is uh, this, this agreement needed unanimous agreement. So every single country needed to back this. Um, so if you go down the veto road in the EU, and you may find very soon that other issues that you may want, you know, some slack on around the EU table, maybe countries won't be as as willing to do that. So, you know, it's kind of a dangerous game when you for weeks and months maybe indicated, oh, this is fine, then at the last minute say, actually, it's not. And that seems to be what happened here. The commission had given that, that objectively Romania and Bulgaria, and particularly Romania, had fulfilled all the criteria. They've been monitoring on this for years. Um, the commission officials are telling us privately there isn't an issue with migrants coming in, say, from Romania to, to Austria. So, you know, in terms of uh, the facts, Romania and Bulgaria had fulfilled uh, all the criteria that the Commission had expected from them. So Romania in particular are quite annoyed now. They're, they, the president has been out speaking on this. Um, they say it's profoundly unfair for their country, for Romanian citizens, that Romania deserve to receive a favourable vote on this. And that there have been many missions to the member states and by the Commission. In, you know, There was over and back between Bucharest and the Commission on this, and, and Romania feels it had done what it was supposed to do. So um, they feel very hard done by on this debate, but at least one country got in, which was Croatia. And then this issue will return probably next year to look at these other two countries. Well, Romania and Bulgaria, I guess, also have the option of realising that nobody ever lost votes by teeing off at the EU either. But what, what options do those two countries now have? If, as you say, they had met most people's criteria, is there anything more they can or should or will do? I think some of the language coming from Romania, again, I quote the president there, but he also made the point that, you know, Schengen accession is Romania's strategic objective and they're not going to stop until they achieve that. So this is a huge issue for people in Romania who want to be able to travel into the Schengen free zone. Yes, they have free movement because they're part of the EU, 
with the Schengen area, it means you don't have passport checks. So it's a huge issue for their their citizens. So they're not going to just kind of give up and throw their toys out of the pram. They're going to try and work constructively. So the way the EU works, the Czech, Czech Republic had been leading the EU for the last six months. Now Sweden takes over in January. It was quite interesting. Sweden has a quite more of a right-wing government now. Uh, they had elections a few months ago. They're going to be in the chair for the next six months. But Sweden, for example, had issues around Romania and Bulgaria joining, but they came on board in the last few weeks. So there's a sense that it's not all over, that this they will go back to the drawing board, maybe get some kind of concessions or something, and then ultimately these two countries will get in. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, thanks as always for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd you come in here looking like that is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in (laughs) your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. You are back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. In 2019, an 18-year-old British man, Harry Dunn, was knocked off his motorcycle and killed by an American citizen driving on the wrong side of the road. The American citizen, Anne Sekoulis, was married to a US intelligence official serving at a nearby military base. The US government asserted diplomatic immunity on her behalf and she left the country. Yesterday, after three years of transatlantic rancour, justice of a sort was done. Anne Sekoulis pleaded guilty remotely to causing death by careless driving to a British court and was sentenced to eight months, suspended for a year. Well, I'm joined in the studio with more on this by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And, Andrew, first of all, we, we should probably get you to explain that you have personal reasons for having followed this case very closely. Well, look, my family story is certainly nothing of the scale of this, but there were some strange echoes for me that may have made me follow this story over the past three years. And I think the extraordinary fight by the family to try and get some justice. But it made me think about the nature of grief and how you get over the loss of a child. So my family story is that actually uh, some 18 months before I was born, my parents had a a son who was 10 years old who was hit by uh, an American serviceman driving a a Volkswagen Beetle. And um, my brother was seriously injured and was taken into hospital where he survived for 10 days before he passed away. So then, strangely, 18 months later, my parents already had a pretty grown-up family. When my mum was 45 and my dad was 50, my mum suddenly became pregnant again, and I was born out of that pregnancy. So I grew up not really thinking about this tragedy much, but now when I look back, I realise how much it shaped my parents' Mm. lives and, and how... This idea that you can get closure even with uh, the end of a trial, I, d- I don't think it ends there. I think that for the, 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 both the Sekoulis family, actually, and for the Dunn family, it will continue. It, it, it leaves a hairline crack through your family, which I think is, is, you know, it doesn't mean it destroys your family or is a, a always painful, 
But it's always there. It's, always, it's a line that runs through your family. In the case of your brother's death, was any kind of justice done? Did your parents attempt to pursue any kind of justice? Because there is a, there's obviously a similar complicating factor in that this is a, an American service person involved. There was an inquest and it was deemed an accident. And I think for my... And the American serviceman would have been st- stationed here. He was stationed here at a U.S. airbase. He went back, I believe, to America. But it, it's also it happened in in the early '60s, and he could still be alive, I would imagine. Mm. And you know, and and the the tragedy, you know, Anne should have come face face trial and, and done the decent thing because I think for her as well and her family, you know. This notion that you can just walk away from those things, I think, is very difficult. I don't, I don't know that anybody can do it. And I have often wondered about him because, you know, for my parents, it was a strange time. So they had another son, mm. and they didn't really want to kind of, in many ways, you know, kind of bring the two things together. But they did come together. You know, my my grandmother had bought the bicycle on which my brother was killed. At Christmas, you know, aunts and uncles would get forgetful and you, you would open a birthday card and it was, you know, to Ian rather than to Andrew. And then there was a strange thing when my... In fact, when there was nothing wrong with my mother, but when I was in my 30s, we were at dinner once with my mum and dad and my partner. And my mum went through a mental kind of um, door that she found it impossible to come back from when we were at, at dinner. And she suddenly thought that I was Ian. And... It was, a, it was an awful moment for her and for me. So this is why I think this is this Fisher thing is interesting because you know that you put it aside and you you box up your grief and you you move on, which my parents mm. did. They were happy, wonderful people, and amazing parents. But it doesn't go away. And you know, I never knew this guy. He, he he died before I was born. But I've always had this kind of like a, a little bit of a shadow cast by it because mm. and my sisters too. It's it's just one of those pieces of family history so i think for the dunn family what's fascinating is and i wish them all all super well because i think it is is hard to move on we we, we don't like people dying in the wrong order and when a, a son dies we before a, a parent it's, it's difficult i mean what i think this case throws up is the 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 question of the difference between justice and closure do you think they're the same thing and do you think in your parents experience it might have been different if that different rather if there'd been this kind of justice done I don't really, and I I think that you know that there is no justice in in this situation. You, mm. you know, there you know you if Anne Coolis had come back and she had actually not got a suspended sentence and she had been sent to jail for several years, it, it doesn't change the narrative. And I, and I think oddly maybe for the Dunn family, that is why that they have said that they they feel that they have done what they could do and they need to move on now because I think actually when somebody then. Is is detained or uh, incarcerated? In a way, the story ke- keeps on going on in your mind. Then you have to think about her in prison and things, and that that doesn't res- resolve the situation. It was. A t- it sounds like it was a, a, a terrible accident. It was dangerous driving. She pulled onto the wrong side of the road, coming out of a U.S. airbase. But I, I don't think that a, that a trial would have, have, have solved my parents' grief. I think, and also that this is a time when people didn't know how to talk about mm. these things. So, in you know, I, just a tiny aside, my parents had a, a tin box in which was Ian's watch and the football cards he'd collected and things. And my my dad showed me that box maybe when I was like eight or nine, 
And he began to be comfortable about telling me the story. And there was a, one picture of uh, Ian in their bedroom. But, but oddly, it wasn't that talked about. But that, now I, I look back and wonder, how on earth could you go to the same hospital and, and say goodbye to one son and collect another son as a baby in such a short period of time when you must have been in grief? But I don't remember those things. So I don't know how, I don't know the, the, the mm. tears that were, were, were behind closed doors. I don't know the conversations that were said over pillows at night. But I have a feeling that, you know, there was a lot bottled up. And when I look back at it, I can see it. I, you know, my dad was somebody who every Sunday would go into the garden and garden on his own for several hours. And I'm sure that was a, a moment of reflection. Just finally then, um, and picking up on what you were saying about how times have changed, it, it would probably have been unimaginable in the period you're talking about, had your parents wanted to insert themselves in the middle of a fairly significant transatlantic diplomatic dispute. Um, But obviously Harry Dunn's family have done that. They have achieved something of what they wanted to achieve. Do you think times have changed enough, or that it's a positive development that times have changed sufficiently that a family in this situation now feels able to do that? Well, they've been extraordinary. Can Mm. you imagine being invited to Washington meeting the president of the United States and still holding out for the thing that you believe in. But Andrew, I think you know, that you know, we see it again and again, whether it's it's because a child has an illness, uh, a terrible crime, like with Stephen Lawrence, for example. The oddly very ordinary people who are parents, when they are, are thrust into tragic situations, they have, many of them have within them an extraordinary capacity to fight for justice. And that can be in all sorts of amazing situations. But again, I I just marvel at people who, in a situation like this, weren't coward, knew that justice had to be done, and fought like tooth and nail and and did everything they could to make sure that their their son's life wasn't just forgotten and that they got as best as they could, as close as they could, to some kind of justice for themselves. Andrew Tuck, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, it is our weekly reflection on the extent to which the seven more days of growing older has made us any any wiser. Tomorrow belongs to me. We learned this week that we had perhaps paid insufficient attention to the first 12 Heinrichs. We learned this when German plod arrested one Heinrich XIII and a few dozen other conspirators who now stand accused of planning to storm the Reichstag at some unspecified juncture and install Heinrich XIII, a tweed-jacketed 70-something scion we learned of some minor family of Thuringian aristocrats, as a new Kaiser. We learned that the putative putschists believe that the present German state is illegitimate and seek to re-establish the German Empire as it was circa 1871 to 1918, though one can picture difficulties persuading Poland and Russia of the merits of this proposal. 
We learned that these weirdos had been further inspired, almost as if believing that their founding principles were insufficiently bonkers, by both the seething driveling of the QAnon cult and the attempt by fans of then-US President Donald Trump to take the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. We learned, other than reassuringly, that among those alleged to be involved were several active and former military and police personnel, one former member of the actual Bundestag, and an opera singer who fancied himself as culture minister. Though we did learn of the formidable capacities for droll understatement and historical perspective possessed by one serving German MP, Sarah Nani of the Green Party, whose assessment of the situation will now be read by Monocle 24's ill-considered insurrections desk chief, Emma Searle. More and more details keep coming to light that raise doubts about whether these people were smart enough to plan and carry out such a coup. But no matter how crude their ideas are and how hopeless their plans, even the attempt is dangerous. Still, if there is one thing we have learned about plots to wrest control of the German state by nationalist yahoos and far-right dingbats, delirious with conspiracy theories and paranoia, it's that they rarely amount to much. Anyway. We learned that we were experiencing quite the red-letter week for aficionados of extra-parliamentary seizures of power, as Peru's President Pedro Castillo attempted the rarely witnessed manoeuvre known as the Alto Golpe, essentially a coup against the state one is already leading. Los adversarios políticos más extremos En un acto inédito, se unen con el único propósito de hacer fracasar al gobierno. We learned from the address to the nation now playing beneath us that President Castillo, facing impeachment by an opposition-controlled Congress, had hit upon the idea of dissolving Parliament before it could run him out of office and ruling the country by presidential decree. We swiftly learned, as did now ex-President Castillo, that this wasn't going to work, as even his own vice-president declared she wanted nothing to do with it, and Castillo legged it for the Mexican embassy in search of haven, only to be apprehended by Lima's finest. We learned, therefore, that Peru's astonishing run of gutter balls, where presidents is concerned, continues. Castillo was Peru's 10th president of the 21st century. Of the previous nine, and we are not making this up, four are in jail under house arrest awaiting trial or fighting extradition, two were impeached and removed, one of them after six days in office, and another shot himself when police attempted to serve an arrest warrant. So we've learned that among the many challenges faced by new president, as of this broadcast, etc., Dina Boloate, a high bar for probity is not among them. We learned of a possible fallback career opportunity for those whose dreams and or delusions of resurrecting the Second Reich or being President of Peru have foundered in awkward circumstances. We learned of a job opening seeking many of the noble traits which aspirants to high office often imagine in themselves. 
The ideal candidate for the position is described as, and we are reading from the actual advertisement, highly motivated and somewhat bloodthirsty, and boasts qualities including, but not limited to, stamina and stagecraft, as well as swashbuckling attitude, crafty humour, and general aura of badassery. In return for which, you may command a handsome salary up to 170,000 US dollars. We learned, however, that there is a downside. We learned that the gig is what the city of New York delicately describes as Director of Rodent Mitigation, which, shorn of any such technocratic euphemism, shakes out as Gotham's rat catcher in chief. And treat yourself to a round of applause for the sound effects. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Marco Sippi. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns on Monday at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.